could be turning to James 4, and I checked for you, so if you have a large print Bible, that's page 2097. If you have a small Bible, that's page 779. As we turn to James 4, though, I want to impress upon your heart. The freedom that all of us should have at this church. (laughs) The freedom to be vulnerable, to be yourself, to not put on a facade of holiness. (laughs) But to be real and, and genuine. Because when you are real and genuine, I believe real sanctification takes place. That's a big word that means growing in grace. (laughs) Sanctification. James is about to confront the very real practice of those who come to church to judge, who believe that Jesus must have said, you are my friends if you judge one another, (laughs) not love one another. So I invite you to all stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word, just two verses today, James 4, 11 through 12. James writes, Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the one judge that James is speaking of. We invite you to come and act from your mercy and your love and your grace to pour out over us your spirit, to speak to us, to speak to me, sinners undeserving, but you give more grace. So in humility, we ask you to do wonders with your word. We trust that it is written by you, inspired by you, breathed out by you. So we do not come before it lightly. Rather, we come before it humbly asking to hear your voice. And that it would implant on our heart and move us to do action. Father, would you have your way with all your people? Would you give us receptive hearts? Would you soften hard hearts? We restore people to you today. Have your way among us. I ask these things solely on your grace and the salvation given to us through our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. James has been on this theme since really the third chapter of James started this theme of the tongue. He started in James 3 stating that really everyone stumbles with the tongue, it's a restless evil. And many people who claim to have wisdom are what I called hill dyers, misplaced martyrs who are looking for self-promotion and to be noted for their so-called holiness. James is really hitting that theme again today, but James says that that's not Wisdom from above. That's not a tongue 
sanctified from above. And so last week, James, talking to the group, he called them out and he told them to repent. And he's basically saying there are bigger fish to fry than your petty disagreements. <laughs> then your he said, she said, and your he's reading the wrong Bible and she's got the wrong hat on and that money shouldn't be used there. And James is saying you're also wrapped up in your petty hills you want to die on that you're missing the gospel great commission. You, you cannot please God with your life, period, because you're too wrapped up in what's happening with other Christians. Grow up, is what James is saying. That's how he approached it last week. He was blunt. He called people adulteresses. He called them enemies and hostiles to God. Now, when it comes to these two verses, I've been having a headache all week. <laughs> I just didn't know how to frame it. Because I'm wired to do phrase by phrase, but it's hard to walk through it phrase by phrase. I just didn't know what to do, so here's what I decided. Let's hear it again in its entirety, and then in some ways, to make it really simple and easy for you, we're going to focus on it from the inside out. <laughs> so, he says, don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? It seems to me the bulk of these two verses has a central concern with one big fact. We have a judge. <laughs> we, we not... We have not just a judge, we have the judge over us. And some would have you take fear in that fact, and maybe so, but also take hope that our judge is God, Jesus, not anybody else. Our judge is one who is merciful. Our judge is one who empowers his people to follow his law, not one who lords over people. And James is, in fact, here attacking those who would rather lord over people. When I, what I first want to do is look at this concept of Jesus being judge, or God being judge, and then with that background from God's word, head back over to James and add a little weight to his argument with that background. So let's start actually from James's remark here, though, in verse 12, where again, where he says, there is... One lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Isaiah the prophet has this great verse that goes with James' theme, James theme here. For background, in Isaiah 33, Assyria, another nation, is being considered, and Assyria has been destroying God's people and has seemingly gone unchecked. But God's people are not to take fear, but hope in this fact. In that Isaiah 33, 22 states, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Do you hear to the hope in that? You see, the world, Assyria, is coming against God's people, but God's people appeal to a higher power. A power that's more powerful than Assyria. In fact, the very God, now this will give you a headache, but the very God who allowed Assyria to come upon God's people in the first place 
And so in essence, Israel might be saying, though we be disciplined, we take hope in his mercy. We take hope in our judge. We take hope in the lawgiver and the king. Ultimately, God is a God and a judge who can save and destroy, says James. It reminds us of what Jesus says. He's encouraging his disciples to be bold and courageous in the face of persecution. And about opponents, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, or 10, excuse me, verse 28, Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's saying fear God. Fear God, don't fear men. Men can kill the body, God can kill the soul. We have a higher power we ought to fear. But that highest authority, that one judge and one lawgiver is described over and over in the Bible as a God whose love endures forever, who is full of mercy and slow to anger, who is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to receive everlasting life. This is how God reveals himself. James is confronting people then who in some ways do not like this side of God. Because hill dyers, we talked about this term I made up, people who think they have the corner on holiness and righteousness and truth and want everybody else to live up to their standards, hill dyers love the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, and they'll say things like, don't preach God's love, that's too wish-washing. Strike the fear of God in people. Go Jonathan Edwards and say, God's holding them by a string over the fiery depths of hell. There is a time and a place for that, I believe. That's not every day. That's not every second. That's actually not the overwhelming demonstration that God gives us in the Word. I want to be very clear here. I'm unashamed to say that God is a God of wrath and justice, and he demands holiness and righteousness. But Jesus says, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the King who has come to bleed, suffer, and die, and give himself as a ransom for many, if you've seen the Son who has come into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world and give his life, while we were yet sinners, and he says about laying down his life, this is love. Then we've seen the Father. We've seen the one judge that the world has. And it screams love. It screams compassion. It screams forgiveness. It does scream, this is what sin does. But it also screams, you are forgiven if you receive and receive it wholeheartedly. Do you hear that? Jesus says in John 12, 47 through 50, he says, If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, listen to this, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. God's command is eternal life. 
That's his primary goal, to save sinners. He doesn't want to burn them up. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that he's a God who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Everyone, all people. The Bible says this is the God we serve. No wonder people who rightfully reflect him should manifest the kind of wisdom, or also, as Paul would put it, the kind of spirit that James says in James 3:17 through 17-18, he says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If believers are really following the judge and the king that the Bible reveals, then this is the sort of fruit their fellowships ought to manifest. Amen? But it's always, it's not always. That's what James has been hammering on in this community of believers with problems with their tongue. And after calling them to repentance, revealing to them the hard truth that believers who ignore the correction in this area of their lives, if they came to be, claim to be believers, yet they're really just flamethrowers with their tongue, then they're not reflecting God, they're adulteresses. They're hostiles, they're enemies of God. So he tells them to repent. How so? Well, once feeling the contrition, the plain, obvious truth then is to just simply don't criticize one another, brothers. For its context, This word criticize is a hard word to encompass in its meaning. It means literally speak against. And it has connotations of slander, of grumbling, false accusations, or this is important, even delivering the truth, but in a malicious manner. It's delivering the truth with a desire from selfish Pride, not God-honoring, not meant to help, but really meant to harm. It becomes clear that the person maliciously criticizing could care less about the person they're talking to. It's more of a matter of truth. I got it, you don't. (laughs) Me, winner, you, loser. I'm on the high road, you're on the low road, so I'm going to kick you down and rub your face in the dirt while you're down there. That's kind of the heart of criticism. See, some Christians are not looking for my sanctification or my holiness. They're looking to promote themselves and how holy they are. (laughs) And how much better they are and how far gone everyone else is. James says, cut it out. (laughs) Don't criticize one another. But they're not reading the right Bible translation. Or no, they're not reading the Bible every day. They're drinking beer. They're not passionate about the godly causes I'm passionate about. They don't pray for the president. Don't criticize one another. I want you to hear that this is a particular attitude of the heart, one that we've been discussing for many weeks, because I do not want you to hear James saying, don't denounce sin in other people, while James is denouncing sin in the people he's writing. James is not saying, don't confront sinners with their sin, as James is confronting sinners with their sin. James is just saying, don't play judge. (laughs) We already have a judge. We're supposed to reflect that judge in our attitude, and so we reflect his peace and gentleness and mercy, and leave it up to God to do the judging part. 
And this is something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Perhaps there is this law in Leviticus that James may be thinking about. Leviticus 19, 16-18 says, You must not go about spreading slander among your people. You must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your brother directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that before. I am Yahweh. See the point here. God's bride are not to be a people who hold grudges. And you know, five years down the road, well, Kevin said that in a sermon, and he did this to that person. You know, that's the kind of person he is. Keep your distance. I'm reminded of a story of how this plays out in church life. Many years ago, a pastor and a few folks from his church in Spokane, they came to Valley View Nazarene. That's where I grew up. Some of you who have been around here for a while might remember when Valley View Nazarene wasn't as big building-wise as it was now. So around the beginning of the 2000s, the bigger sanctuary was being worked on. And so, again, a team from Spokane Church, they came down and helped one week. And the pastor from that church was going to be preaching that Sunday. So we're sitting down at the table to eat dinner Saturday night, and it was getting late. I don't remember how late. Well, finally, somebody at the table, we'll just call his name Larry, he says to the visiting pastor from Spokane, well, I guess we're keeping you. Maybe you better get back to the hotel so you can finish up studying for your sermon for tomorrow. And the pastor replies kind of nonchalantly, oh, it's fine, I've preached that a sermon dozen times. Didn't say anything else, didn't do any mannerisms, just that one statement. And that statement for Larry was a statement in which he made a judgment against the pastor. For Larry, he heard that the pastor wasn't invested in delivering a fresh message to the congregation. The pastor wasn't going to go back and pray, and for all Larry knew, the pastor was going to be up late watching TV and just deliver a sermon he's preached a thousand times to a bunch of people who haven't heard it before. It felt like a lack of enthusiasm. I know this because Larry, from then on, had a rather jaded view of that pastor. That pastor was mentioned in conversation. Oh, okay, that guy. So much so that the pastor came back four to five years later to do a series of revival sermons. Larry was not looking forward to it. However, the pastor, whenever he spoke, he spoke of some personal trials in one of his message and how his daughter, I believe, married an unbeliever and This pastor had some baggage with him as he preached, and for Larry, his attitude changed about the pastor. Finally, the pastor earned back some respect in that maybe the pastor grew up a bit. Since the pastor had some baggage, maybe he was a little bit more real and genuine in his preaching. Or it could be that the pastor had always been real and genuine and on the up and up. Larry just made a quick judgment about a pastor he only knew for a day or so and made assumptions because, lo and behold, the pastor was preaching a recycled sermon on a busy week he spent helping another church get a sanctuary up. I think I would understand why. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Our passage in James 4.11 says, Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law 
and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You can't have God's job. Christians cannot have God's job. Whenever it comes to the courtroom of God, there's only one seat for the judge, and we're not in it. God occupies that seat. Now, when it comes to judgment, judgment can be a concept in English or Greek or Hebrew that has multiple meanings. For example, if the judge at a courtroom were to judge you guilty of murder, Meanwhile, the judge at the county fair judges Sharon's 47 cross-stitches patterns as deserving of ribbons. There are two types of judgments going on. Would you agree? One judgment has conviction and consequences. The other implies a judgment of character or performance that doesn't have really binding or condemning or damning consequences. Maybe Sharon's up late at night if she fails, but things like that. But rather, it's a judgment simply out of observation or commendation. See, Sharon's judgment will incur a commendation of ribbons, or should they do the unthinkable and judge her work undeserving of placement, Sharon's going to go home with her cross-stitch patterns, with or without ribbons, but really incur nothing of a criminal judge guilty would incur. Does that make sense? And I bring that up because maybe some of you have been listening to this sermon and you've had in your head all along, you're going to say the judge not lest you be judge garbage. But the Bible is full of commands for Christians to call out other Christians in their sin. And this is true. This is certainly not what James is arguing against. First, we hear from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 7, Do not judge, so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. There is a difference between critical, slanderous, condemning judgment versus judgment of observation and concern. When Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged, and then with the obvious illustration he gives, this is what James is getting at, it's the pot calling the kettle black. It would be like me, a glutton, standing up here saying, you know what, potty mouths deserve hell so much. And everyone's a potty mouth. Shame on you all, you all deserve hell. You're such sinners that starting today I'm going to implement the no potty mouth rule, and so if you have a potty mouth, just go home. Meanwhile, I'd go home, eat a few more brownies, and slip into a nice case of diabetes and a heart attack. But at least I got the potty mouths out of here. So what is Jesus saying? What is James saying? Are they saying, since I have gluttony issues and other people have potty mouth issues, it's best to just shut up about sins? No. It's best to not judge in a, you're guilty because I said so, sort of way. But judge in a, hey, I've made observations. We both have access to a higher standard, namely our God who made the standard on what to do about that. Both my gluttony and your potty mouth. Even Jesus took that route. I know we read it earlier, but I want you to hear it again. When it came to accepting Jesus for forgiveness of sin, again, Jesus says in John 12, If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus even says he doesn't judge people. He has a right to. He's God. But he leaves the judgment to the word of God. Here's what to do. Here's what you're guilty of. Here's what you can do about that. And here's what will judge you if you don't. A judgment of observation, not a judgment from me to you. Do you hear the difference in that? And this is the way Christians are supposed to interact with one another. To allow the word of God to testify to people's behaviors. And we are allowed to make county fair type judgments. Not the courtroom type judgments on one another. I want you to see an example between Paul and Peter. Paul recounts a judgment he made on Peter in Galatians 2 beginning with verse 11. He says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So it's the early church, and there are the Jews who accept their Messiah, but some still want to be more Jewish than need be. And then there are Gentiles who accept Jesus and find freedom to not have to follow all the Jewish laws because Christ fulfilled the law. So there's this tension in the church. It's all over the New Testament. Do we still not eat pork? (laughs) Do we worship on Saturday or Sunday? Can these Gentiles still in good faith celebrate their new moon festivals and still be Christians? It's all over the New Testament. And while Paul sees Peter trying to play both sides. You know Peter, he's told told in a dream to eat any meat he wants to. He's free in Christ to do so. Peter goes and witnesses to a Gentile named Cornelius. And he's the guy accepting Gentiles into the church. And suddenly he comes to Antioch and he's having a high old time with Gentiles. Oh, you're cooking bacon. Sounds good. And then, it's implied in the Greek. And then... A few people come from Jerusalem under James, the very James we're reading about, and it could be a reflection of James, or it could be a few Jews of weak faith, and they look down on Peter saying, you're eating bacon? Okay, this is not about bacon, I don't want you to think about that, but you're carousing with Gentiles? I mean, I know you say they're Christians, Peter, but can we really trust them? And Peter backpedals and he stops sitting at their tables. Maybe it's because the people are from Jerusalem, you know. It's the proverbial president's men are here to see me. We don't know why. But Paul's not going to watch that and stand for it. Now listen to the words that Paul said. I think it's important. He says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. See, the evidence is there. God had revealed to Peter personally and firstly and openly and plainly that Gentile guys are okay. The ones at fault were the Jews from Jerusalem, from James, and they were looking down on the Gentiles. And even though Peter only had to answer to God about who he sat at the table with, the fear of man came into play. And so he said, Gentiles, the new guys were slowly accepting in the body, or Jews from James. I'm going to please the Jews from James. So he stood condemned. 
So when Paul confronts Peter, Paul is not saying, Paul or Peter, I'm giving you a fine. Rather, he made the county fair performance judgment. In essence, he's saying, you and I both know what you did here is wrong. Paul's not saying, I did it better. <laughs> Paul's not saying, I'm a better Christian. Paul's not saying, good thing I don't have any sin. But he is saying, we both know it's wrong. You stand condemned. You hear that? And it's openly in front of everyone. This is the route that Paul says ought to be handled in church. He says to Timothy, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who, are, who sin so that the rest will be afraid. How many of you want to practice that? <laughs> I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Publicly rebuke those who sin. It's not judging if a person says, here's the law, here's what you did, we both know you're guilty. And if it's with a heart that says, we want repentance and holiness and sanctification, we want to see recovery and growth in you. It's not a heart of humiliation. And a public rebuke is public so that the body of Christ can hold the accused accountable for their discipline and sanctification. I know we live in a world that says sins are better left unspoken about because, hey, we're all sinners. But Christ has given us the body to help sanctify each other. And it comes back to James. I know we've dipped in the teachings of Jesus and Paul, but the Bible agrees with each other. James agrees with Paul and Jesus. As James says in James 5, verses 16, 19, and 20, he says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. He says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Don't criticize one another. Certainly keep one another accountable. Certainly point out sin for sanctification, not for humiliation. You cannot prescribe judgment. Only God does that, but you can diagnose sin. To bring it full circle. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and a judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? See, for those who listen to this message and say, James seems to be talking about a pansy, don't hurt people spilling sugarcoat truth type messages. <laughs> Two things. First off, I hope I've demonstrated that's not what James is saying, nor what the Bible says. Secondly, James is saying to those who would judge, who do you think you are? <laughs> right? When did you step out from under the law saying, I'm like Jesus, I'm perfect. Move over, God. There's enough for two on the judge's stand. No, that doesn't happen. I want to make this for you personal in conclusion, and that's about my conclusion, actually. Because here I was last night with the conclusion unwritten, the conclusion for the sermon not done, and as I was thinking about this, here's what I was glad to do. I was glad, I was overjoyed and relieved that I was able to come before nobody else but God who is not only our judge, but Isaiah tells us our wonderful counselor to seek out a conclusion. Because there are people I have met in my Christian walk, people you have met in your Christian walk, that honestly you don't call up for, ask godly advice for. You can't 
You don't call up for godly counsel. Why? Because they're judges. They do exactly what James is talking about here. There's only one judge, and his name is God, and he does his job best. (laughs) And he does it better than anybody else, because by definition, it's not a job made for anybody else. And so-called judges, as James is describing here, have done a horrible disgrace and a dishonor to the name of Christ and to his bride, the church. They have ran off would-be Christians. They have damaged saints. I wonder if you're among them today. i got to be honest, I'm among them. I humbly and sincerely pray that I've never been guilty of judging. I'm not naive enough to think that I've never been guilty of it, but I certainly know how it feels to be judged. I'm a damaged saint. And if, and if you know how that feels too, I want you to take hope that while the judges in your life matter because they are people, their judgments don't. Only God has the job of making judgments that matter. Now again, don't throw out this entire sermon. Certainly people can confront us with sin. Certainly we accept conviction, reproof, correction, admonishment. But when it comes to the kind of criticism that James is speaking about here, the malicious, evil intent, the self-righteous, prideful judgments, that is sin on the part of those who are judging. Because your judge is God. And our God is merciful, our God is loving. For the believer, our God is a God who is helpful when he convicts of sin, not hurtful. Our God is a God who says, I see sin and I will deal with it. And so he comes, and while we are yet sinners, he dies for us in the person and work of Christ. And the spirit that raises Christ from the dead lives in us and gives us the power to not only see our sin for what it is, but to overcome it and to walk in newness of life. And so condemnation and stagnation are not to win us over. But I love what James says back in James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's our God. That's our judge. Do you love that? And so God looks down. He's still perfectly just. Romans 3.26 says he's just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or as the HCSB puts it, he both remains righteous and can declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That means God is not a corrupt judge. Because we wouldn't be serving a perfect judge if he was corrupt. See, his judgments are still taking place. He's not sliding judgment under the table. He's not letting sin go off scot-free. Your sin is still finding a just punishment for it. It's just being given to Jesus. So whenever you're brought before our judge, if you have faith in him, then mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you understand that concept? That's our judge. And that's the only judge you'll ever need to deal with. The one that remains righteous, pure, untarnished, and perfect and at the same time justifies and makes you righteous. That's a great judge. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I consider it your grace and your blessing to have been born and raised in the church. I know everybody doesn't have that grace and blessing. But at the same time, I've seen and felt and interacted with a lot of people who have damaged me. Father, I pray that I've never been on the other end. Maybe some of us have. 
And for those of us who have been damaged or have done the damage, may we know that there is only one judge, and this is a great truth to rejoice in, because that judges you. And that you're a merciful judge, you forgive the sin of judging, You've forgiven the judges who have judged us. Father, show us how to have grace. Show us how to be a peaceable, pure people, filled with the fruit of the wisdom that James has talked about. Father, show us how to do that. And I don't want anybody to walk away, Father, from this sermon thinking that, well, I can't confront sinners with their sin anymore. I don't want to be hurting them. Would you help them to not walk away from that task you've given us to keep each other accountable, but rather to evaluate the way they should talk to people about their sin. That we can still do that in a way that's humble, in a way that reflects you, and we can still do that for the building up of other saints. Father, would you help us to do whatever it is you want us to do with these words? We thank you and we love you, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.